writing about what she referred to as her train wreck conversion to Christianity. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who's the author of uh, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, said this. As a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians. Then I somehow became one. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians, in particular, were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, also, another journey to faith you may have heard about is uh, Kirsten Powers, who is a columnist for USA Today, and she's also a Democratic contributor on Fox News, which has got to be fun for her. But uh, and here's what, what she said about her journey to Christ. Just seven years ago, if someone had told me that I'd be writing for Christianity, Christianity Today magazine about how I came to believe in God, I would have laughed out loud. If there was one thing in which I was completely secure, it was that I would never adhere to any religion, especially to evangelical Christianity, which I held in particular contempt. Now, what do you think about that? Prior to the conversion of these two women, if, if you had been looking around saying, who do I think is most likely to be converted to Christ in the next five years, you would not have picked uh, either of these people there would be little likelihood in your mind, because there was little likelihood in their mind that they would ever profess faith in Jesus Christ, and yet now both of them are believers. How does that happen? And what does that look like? What, what does that feel like? What's this process look, look like whereby a person who's ardently set against God actually becomes a follower of Jesus Christ? Uh, there's no one size it's all uh, story for this. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield's story looks somewhat different from Kirsten Powers, looks different from my story, looks different from your story. But I think there, there are core elements in every story of how a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And I think we can see these things in the story we're about to read this morning of Gideon. And so that's what we're going to look like this morning, look at, look at this morning. Uh, what does it look like to become a believer in God, to come to faith in Jesus Christ? Or better yet, what does it look like when God just sort of breaks in to your life? So Judges chapter 6, uh, and we're going to read verses 1 through 24 this morning. This is God's word. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. 
they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. <clears throat> and Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went to his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from the heap of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God! For now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. We pray for us. Father in heaven, uh, this is your word that we're looking at and, and hoping to gain light from this morning. So we pray that you would give us that light, uh, that you would open our minds to understand, that you'd open our hearts to believe and trust uh, your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's talk about the situation that we're in here. We find ourselves in Judges 6, 
Judges 6 this morning. Uh, if you've been with us so far in the book of Judges, the study, the story sounds somewhat familiar, right? Uh, in fact, it probably sounds pretty repetitive because it is repetitive. The Israelites have again done evil in the sight of the Lord, and he's handed them over to their oppressors. Uh, except this time it's worse, which is kind of the pattern that the book of Judges is going to take. It's this downward spiral getting a little bit worse and a little bit worse every week. Uh, this time he's, the text tells us he's given them into the hands of the Midianites and the Amalekites and the peoples of the east. Uh, and, and what would happen is, is that whenever the Israelites planted their crops, all of these people would come running in and they would basically destroy everything. They'd wipe out their crops. Okay? So the Israelites were left there with nothing to eat and they would retreat uh, up into the caves. Uh, my family watched the, the, the movie The Croods this weekend, uh, which is not about crude people, but it's about uh, cavemen. And, and they were terrified to go out of their cave for most of the day. Every once in a while they would slip out, they would do what they needed to do, and then they'd come back in, they'd roll the stone over to make sure nobody got in to get after them. They just kind of lived that sort of existence every day. That's kind of the existence the Israelites have been reduced to for seven years retreating into their caves in the mountains, trying to gather what little food they can, and then running away as the Midianites descend them, and the text says, like locusts, year after year after year. And so we're told, as you can imagine, that the Israelites were brought very low, and so they cried out to help to God. The Israelites cry out to help, they're crying for deliverer, they want to be rescued, but who does God send? Uh, the text tells that God sent them a prophet. So imagine, you're living like this year after year, barely eking out of the, an existence. These foreign armies are invading every year and, and wiping out all your food, and you're crying out to God for help. And then, instead of God sending you SEAL Team 6, he sends you somebody like me. Okay? Hey, guys, I'm here to help. Uh, and, and, and basically, instead of sending you rescue, he sends you a preacher. Instead of uh, instead of sending you Chuck Norris, he sends you Pat Robertson. Okay, and you're thinking this is this is not going to be very helpful. Uh, but what does the what does the prophet then do? The prophet brings a message, and the message basically has two parts. It says, "Look, God, here's who God is, and here's what He has done for you, and here's how you've responded to it. You haven't responded well." In fact, he ends by saying, "You've not obeyed His voice." And so the prophet wants the people of God to understand why they're in the situation they're in in the first place. They need to hear the word of God. If we're going to look this morning at how conversion takes place and how people are brought to faith in Jesus Christ, one of the things that I think we have to see that's, that's constantly going on in the background of a conversion experience, even as there's conversations and wrestlings, there's, there's this presence of the Word of God in somebody's life. That a person begins to hear the Word of God, and they hear what it says about God, and about them, about who they are, and about what their situation is, and about what God requires. That's just this ongoing thing when a person is in the process of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it may not necessarily be the first step, but at some point, 
If you're going to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have to wrestle with what the Word of God actually says about who you are and about who God is. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield in her book says that uh, as a lesbian, one of the most frightening passages in the Bible to her was Romans 1. And as it talked there about sexual sin and the consequences uh, of sexual sin. Uh, she was a, a, a tenured professor uh, in the English department at Syracuse University. Her specialty was queer theory. Uh, she was writing a paper critical of the religious right. And in the process of doing research for this paper, she, she thought, you know, I really need to, to understand what the Bible actually says, which that seems to be the book that influences the religious, religious right. And so she began to read scripture. She became friends with a pastor. They began to talk about the scriptures and, and what it says. And she says that as all this is happening, she, she began to have these, this conflict going on in her mind between these two competing worldviews. And one of them was the worldview of her experience and what she knew. And the other one was, was this worldview that the Bible was presenting to her. And they, they wouldn't fit together. They were clashing. And this is what she said. This is the struggle that's going on within her. Had my life become real but not true? Was I a sinner or was I sick? How do you repent of a sin that doesn't feel like sin? How could the thing that I had studied and become be sinful? How could I be tenured in a field that is sin? How could I and everyone that I knew and loved be in sin? And so you can see, as she eventually comes to faith in Christ, she's having to hear the word of God and wrestle with what the word of God says to her. Now, nobody's beating her in the face with, with it, but she's reading it and she's discussing it with this, this pastor friend uh, that she had made. Uh, one of the things that, that struck me, both in reading her story of how she came to faith and Kirsten Powers' uh, story of how she came to faith, was just how much time they spent just reading the Bible and wrestling what, with what the Bible actually said. Um, and I think that what, what that means is if, if you're here and you're, you know, you say, I'm, you know, I'm just kind of checking out Christianity. And I'm trying to figure out if, if maybe this, is it true? Is it for me? Is it, is it worthy of my attention? Then reading and wrestling with the Bible has got to be a part of that process. You can't evaluate Christianity apart from actually studying the scriptures and seeing what they say. And I'll be honest with you, as you do that, you should actually expect it to rub you the wrong way at times. Because it's going to rub all of us the wrong way at times. Because it's the word of God. It's not my word. It's a word from above, from God. But if you're going to seriously consider Christianity, it's got to start, or at least part of the process has got to be, Seriously considering this book on its own terms and thinking about what it says. Now, back to our story. Verse 10. Um, <clears throat> very last sentence. You have not obeyed my voice. The prophet shows up. He gives this message to the Israelites and he concludes with, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, if you've never read Judges before and you're just kind of humming along here, you're probably thinking at this point, okay, he keeps giving them second chances. He keeps sending people to deliver them. 
now he's 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 sending the 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 preacher in, and the preacher is just going to you know tell them they're all going to hell and walk out the door, uh, and this is going to be the end of it. Okay, you you've not obeyed my voice, but instead the the scene shifts dramatically, and and suddenly we're not even talking about the the prophet anymore. <coughs> Uh, the scene shifts dramatically, and you realize that, man, God is actually going to be gracious to his people again. He's not going to cast them all. He's actually going to be gracious to his people again. You realize that it's God's intention to raise up a deliverer, to raise up another judge in Gideon to deliver his people. And what I want us to spend the rest of our time doing is, is looking at how God called Gideon. Because I really think there's something of a template in this uh, showing us how he calls any of us. Uh, how God sort of breaks down the door and enters into our lives. So what do we have here? Well, we know from verse 25 that Gideon's dad, and we're going to look at this next week, God eventually tells Gideon to go tell, tear down your father's idols. So we know that Gideon's dad is an idolater. And because of that, it's pretty likely that Gideon is an idolater as well. That his family, he had grown up in, they just worshipped other gods. Now, it's not that they had no knowledge of the true God. Because verse 13 says, Gideon, Gideon knows about God. He remembers the Exodus. He just doesn't see, well, God, this God doesn't seem to be doing anything anymore. Because we seem to be in a whole lot of hurt right now. The gods of, of the Canaanites seem much more relevant to their situation. And so what's probably happened is that his father has kind of tried to play it both ways. I'm going to hold on to this God of the Bible that we've known, and I'm going to also worship these gods of the Canaanites. Now that could be, you know, we think about that, we think, well, that, that seems kind of silly, but, but we can do the very same thing, can't we? That we can formally worship the God of the Bible that we can show up here every Sunday uh, with an intent to worship him, and then we leave, and for the rest of the week, our functional God is something else. Our functional God is success. Our functional God is pleasure. Our functional God is popularity. We have these other things in our lives that are more important to us, that are really, at the end of the day, what our gods are, and yet we come back week after week, and we formally go through the motions of worshiping God. And yet, in our case and in Gideon's case here, Gideon's idolatry, his family's idolatry, doesn't keep God from pursuing him. The guy doesn't say, well, you're worshiping other gods. See you later. God still goes after Gideon. He pursues him, even in his idolatry. The second thing we see here, uh, the text tells us that Gideon is hiding. Uh, it says that he's in a wine press threshing wheat, uh, which I don't know a whole lot about threshing wheat, but I know that's not normally where you would do it, okay? Uh, thresh wheat in a wine press. The reason he's there is because he's hiding. It's an out-of-the-way place. Uh, he's out in the field, and the Midianites see him. You know, he gets captured, killed, whatever. And so Gideon is hiding. He's afraid, and he's hiding. And yet God pursues him. You know, we may not be hiding from the Midianites, um, but we are people who are very good at hiding. 
We're very good at hiding who we are. Our, our fears, in fact, drive us to hide. In that way, we're much like Adam and Eve in the Garden of uh, Garden of Eve. You made fig leaves to cover themselves and hid from God. See, we're we're painfully aware in our sin and our fallenness. We're 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 painfully aware of our own inadequacies. We're painfully aware that we're broken, that we're sinful, and so we try to cover that up as best we can. We may do that with our humor. We may do that with our sarcasm. We may do that with our spirituality. We may do that with our achievements. We may try to do that with who we hang out with. Hey, look, I'm, I'm okay. See who my friends are. There's an article in uh, The Onion this the past week or two, which is this satirical online uh, whatever website. And, and, and this is what the article was in The Onion. While experts agree you've been remarkably successful so far at keeping up the ruse that you're a capable, worthwhile individual, a new report out this week indicates that today is the day they finally figure out that you're a complete and utter fraud. The report, compiled by the Pew Research Center, states that sometime within the next 24 hours, people will find out that you have no idea what you're doing, that you've been faking it for years, and that through continuous lying and shameless posturing, you've actually managed to do virtually everyone around you into thinking you're something other than a weak and ineffectual person. They've had their suspicions all along, sources said, but today their suspicions will be confirmed. All right, now we're kind of like, it's funny. Again, it's a little bit too close to home. Because we're, we're, we're terrified that people will find out who we really are. That, that they'll see who we really are. And so we create these identities for ourselves that have nothing to do with God. They leave God out of the equation. We try to create these coverings for ourselves to, to, to help us feel okay about who we are. But they're not sufficient, and we know it. We know it. We live in terror that, that we'll be revealed. And yet, God pursues people who are hiding. Gideon was hiding. God pursued him. We're hiding, and yet God continues to come after us. Gideon is an idolater. Gideon is hiding, and yet God is in pursuit of Gideon. And yet, even as, as God is pursuing him, Gideon's resisting. He's throwing up roadblocks. Look at verse 15. One of the ways he resists is by saying, I'm not good enough. Uh, and he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. One of the tricks Satan tries to play on us when God is pursuing us is that he'll whisper to us, good enough. You could never be a very good Christian. God can never use you. Think about all the things you've done. Do you think God really loves you? Do you think God's really going to accept you? Do you think that church that they knew would really accept you? But God says to Gideon, I'm with you. I'm your sufficiency. I'll equip you. God says to us, I'm with you. I'm your sufficiency. I've, I've provided the very blood of Christ to cover your sin. And if I call you to do something... I'll equip you to do it. I'm your sufficiency. I'm with you. 
Gideon resists. Oh, no, you can't use me. And yet God proceeds. But Gideon resists in another way. He, he resists because God doesn't make sense to him. Look at verse 13. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and give us, given us into the hand of Midian. If God's so great and wonderful, why is my life like this? If God's so good, why is, is, is everything around me just stink? You know, there, there are these hard questions that we have to wrestle with if, if you're thinking about coming and embracing Christianity. There are these hard questions that come up, and these questions become sort of a way that we resist God. Uh, it may be questions about suffering like Gideon had. God, I, just, I don't get suffering and your goodness, and that doesn't fit together for me. It may be that you don't get Christians, okay? Uh, it's not just that you don't understand who God is. It's just you look at Christians and you're like, I don't get them. And I don't know if I could ever imagine really being one of them. Uh, Rosary Butterfield said that Christians to her seemed anti-intellectual and that they scared her. All right, and, and listen to why they scared her. I think this is, this is interesting. Here's one of the deepest ways the Christian community scared me. The lesbian community was home and felt safe and secure. The people that I knew the best and cared about were in that community. And finally, the lesbian community was accepting and welcoming, while the Christian community appeared, and too often is, exclusive, judgmental, scornful, and afraid of diversity. Uh, the other things he said that scared her was how often Christians acted like their political views, uh, their opinions on things like, well, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't vaccinate your kids. Like, like this whole Christian subcultural package that she had to buy into all of that to be a Christian. And I think just speaking to, to those of us who are Christians, we ought to ask ourselves, do we really want people to believe the gospel? Or are we just trying to get people to look like us and vote like us and dress like us? Do we just want them to enter into our Christian subculture and be exactly like us? Or do we want them simply to know Jesus Christ? But if you're not a Christian, that, all that stuff can be a, bar a barrier, right? Christian and Christianity can be very scary. Uh, some of the, the doubts and the barriers may be that you have questions about the Bible and the reliability of Scripture. Uh, it could be that you have questions about what's it really going to cost me to be a Christian? Uh, Rosary Butterfield said that, that one of her questions was, who would I be without my lesbian identity? Who would I be? I, I've been this person so long. Who would I be if I actually had to give that up? And you may be thinking that same thing if you're not a, a Christian and yet you're wrestling with Christianity. It's like, who would, who would I be if I had to give up this part of me? This has been a part of me for so long. Who would I be? Would I even really exist anymore? Gideon resisted because he had these doubts. He had these questions. We resist because we have these doubts and we have these questions. And yet what we see is that God continues to pursue Gideon 
through the doubts and through the questions. He doesn't just say, okay, well, you're not sure about this, I'll see you later. He continues to pursue Gideon. He comes after him and he comes after us as well. Verse 16, God says to Gideon, I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites. Gideon still resisting. God's still coming after him. I will be with you and you will strike the Midianites. But Gideon's still not quite there yet. He wants a sign that this is really God that's speaking to him. And so he brings this offering before the angel of the Lord. Now let me, let me like just do a five second aside here. Who is this angel of the Lord here? If you're paying attention to the text, you'll notice that at some point it says Gideon's talking to the angel of the Lord and then suddenly he's talking to the Lord himself. And, and the two are interchangeable. And you're asking yourself, well, who is this? Is this God appearing appearing to Gideon? Or is this an angel appearing to Gideon? Uh, is, is this an angelic messenger? Yes. But it's also more than just a messenger. There's something going on here that we don't quite understand. In fact, some people think this is actually an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. It just is Jesus appearing prior to the incarnation. Obvious though, however we identify the angel of the Lord, that in Gideon's mind, for all practical purposes, he's dealing with God himself in this interaction. So, Gideon wants a sign. He brings an offering, and then this is what happens, verse 21. Okay. Uh, then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And I don't know that I need to explain any of that. That's kind of interesting. And so that happened. And that should get Gideon's attention, you would think. And then verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Yeah, he did. And Gideon said, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord God's been pursuing Gideon all this way. And then suddenly there's this moment where Gideon has this, this aha moment, this eye-opening moment where he gets it. And I think even though we don't expect God to, to, to come down and, and burn up our offerings and this sort of thing, but there is this kind of aha moment when God is pursuing when you're wrestling with a with the Bible and trying to, to, to figure out if you're really gonna buy it or not, there's this aha moment in conversion where you suddenly just I I get it. I get it. It all makes sense to me. God is who he says he is. And Gideon has this moment, but instead of jumping up and down about it, now he's terrified. He's terrified. He's terrified because he knows that he's a sinner, and yet he's Standing face to face with God. And he knows that he should die because of that. Because no sinner should be able to be in the presence of a holy God and live. And so he's terrified. But God doesn't leave him there. It's at that moment in the story where God steps in and verse 23 says, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. 
Why doesn't Gideon die? Why doesn't God give him the wrath that he deserved? God provides grace so that there will be peace between God and Gideon. God, instead of providing, instead of showering Gideon with his wrath, he showers him with his grace so that there will be peace between God and Gideon. Hang on, that's the whole story of the Bible. That while we deserve wrath, God in Christ showers us with his grace. That's what the cross is all about. It's God's way of peace. The only way that you and I can be at peace with God is if Jesus absorbs the wrath of God in our place so that we, so that God can declare peace. So that God can declare peace. Gideon has this aha moment where he sees that God is who he says he is, but it terrifies him. And so then God comes in and declares grace and peace to him. I was reading a, another article recently about a, another young lady who had journeyed from atheism to Christianity. And this is what she said. I had begun to read through the Bible and was confronted by my sin. I was painfully arrogant and prone to fits of rage. I was unforgiving and unwaveringly selfish. I passed sexual boundaries that I promised I wouldn't. The fact that I had failed to adhere to my own ethical standards filled me with deep regret. Yet I could do nothing to right these wrongs. You've got to see where she is in the process. Like the Bible has exposed her sin and she sees it for what it is. But she also understands there's nothing that she can do about it. And then she writes that it was at this point, the cross no longer looked merely like a symbol of love, but like the answer to an incurable need. When I read the crucifixion scene in the book of John for the first time, I wept. She was overwhelmed by the reality of her sin, but then God spoke peace to her through the cross of Jesus Christ. She loved it. God breaks into a person's life. It's in the context of this grappling with what the Bible says. And it involves God pursuing us, even though we treasure other things more than we treasure Him. It involves God pursuing us, even though we're hiding from Him, hiding from everyone else. It involves God pursuing us, even as we use these doubts that we have in our minds to resist Him. It involves God pursuing us and opening our eyes to the reality of our sin, but to the reality of His grace and the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, people talk sometimes about coming to faith in Christ. You've heard this Jesus standing at the door, and you got to open the door and let Him in. I understand all that. But I think the way it feels is more like a home invasion. Okay? Then Jesus actually comes and he knocks down the door to your heart and he comes rushing in and, and, and you're terrified because oh, he sees me as I am, right? Or he's just here to, to rob me and shoot me. But instead of coming in and, and killing you, Jesus comes in and dies for you. Jesus comes in to die in order to rescue you. He breaks into our lives. He pursues us in our idolatry in our hiding, in our resistance, 
postulatus belongs to the last class. And I think it's seeing that, seeing God's pursuit of us, seeing God declare peace to us in the gospel, in the cross, I think that's what actually changes us. Peace be to you, God says to Gideon, do not fear, you shall not die. I want to close with this, this, this quick uh, story. Most of you probably heard the name John Piper. is uh, a, a pretty well-known Baptist minister. This was written by his son, who, as you can see, had decided to kind of leave the faith for a while. And, and this is what he writes. His name's Abraham Piper. When I was 19, I decided I'd be honest and stop pretending I was a Christian. At first, I pretended that my reasoning was high-minded and philosophical. But really, I just wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. Four years of this, and I was strung out, stupefied, and generally pretty low, especially when I was sober or alone. My parents, who are strong believers, and who raised their kids as well as any parents I've ever seen, were brokenhearted and baffled. I'm sure they were wondering why the child, why the child they tried to raise right was such a ridiculous screw-up now. But God was in control. One Tuesday morning before 8 o'clock, I went to the library to check my email. I had a message from a girl I'd met a few weeks before, and her email mentioned a verse in the book of Romans. I went down to the Circle K and bought a 40-ounce can of Miller Highlight for $1.29. Then I went back to where I was staying, rolled a few cigarettes, cracked open my drink, and started reading Romans. It sounds a lot like our women's Bible study. Alright, so an uh, unusual method of studying the Bible. I wanted to read the verse. The whole reason he's, he's doing this, he wants to read this one verse. I wanted to read the verse from the email, but I couldn't remember what it was. So I started at the beginning of the book. By the time I got to chapter 10, the beer was gone, the ashtray needed emptying, and I was a Christian. The best way I knew to describe what happened to me that morning is that God made it possible for me to love Jesus. When he makes this possible, and at the same time gives you a glimpse of the true wonder of Jesus, it is impossible to resist his call. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've come after so many of us. That you've spoken peace to us and rescued us. Oh Lord Jesus, I, I pray that there, if there are any here who don't know you, that they would sense your pursuit, that they would stop running, and they would come home to you.